Y'all give it up for Aiden. Thank you so much, man. Yo, what a prayer that we do what we're to do and not just know what we're to do. He might have just preached a sermon. Um, Yo, I'm so glad to get to be here with you guys. Man, spring break. I, anyway, I'm just, we're just ready. Like, we know that we're ready. I don't have to be like, the, are you ready? And you're like, yeah. Like, I get it. Like, you're ready. I'm ready. We ready. And it's snowing. And that's just, like, so frustrating, like, internally as being as someone who's, like, from Florida. You know? Like, it's like, oh, no, spring's when things are supposed to warm up. And it just, it's faked us out a couple times. You feel me? Like, okay, there, there's this one, there's this area, uh, but I'm just going to talk for a little bit. There's this one, there's this area, I promise. We'll get to James chapter one. I promise. Um, there's this area uh, along. Y'all know the Lakeshore Trail that goes like right along the lake. Just so incredible, right? I had to look it up. It's called the Howard Timmons section of Lakeshore Trail. Basically, I don't know if anybody knows where that is exactly. It's the area between the the Memorial Union and and Lakeshore like housing down by near Dejope. Like that that walk is like one of my favorite places in all of Madison. Like from from one area t- to the other. I know for some of you that walk represents like the dreaded march into like exams or like real life but it's it's a it's a beautiful place for me if I got time on campus sometimes um I'll like go sometimes like Amos and I like we hang out like on Tuesdays and so like I'll I'll get to Dejope early and I'll like walk down that trail a little bit and walk back because I just want to get some time to like walk it and pray and it's like way way better in the spring than it is right now because it's just cold outside right now right And, and and I want I want you to just get on the trail with me in your head for just a second. Like fictitious story I'm about to tell, fictitious um, circumstance that this would be. But imagine you and I were walking down Lakeshore Trail together and we're just talking about whatever. We're chopping it up, like just whatever. And, and we're walking down the trail and all of a sudden we hit one of those areas next to the trail, next to the lake, where um, the water is kind of pouring out of a pipe into the lake. So it's not quite frozen yet. And a little fish pops its head out and says, hey guys, that's the fictitious part not us walking together we could actually do that right um but the 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 fish bit talking fish i've been in this lake what what if the fish like pops his head out and says hey uh i've been in this lake my whole life uh you guys walking out on that trail looks pretty great i think it's time for me to be free from the lake do you think you could get me out of here be a pretty odd request for a fish to make or just to hear a fish talk at all, right? But, but, like, but like imagine in this fictitious story that we uh, also have a net with us because we're just prepared like that, you know, just in case, right, you get it, just in case like a fish is gonna talk to us, whatever. And so we, 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 we get the net into the lake and we pick the fish up and we, we put it like uh, on a day like today and we put it on the side uh, of, of the, the path and it just, just lies there. Just a quick question. Was that fish more free when it was in the lake or when it was on the path? Lake, lake, thank you, David. (laughs) That's good. Lake, yes, absolutely, right? Ariel taught us this when we were younger, okay? Flipping your fins, you don't get too far. Legs are required for jumping, dancing, right? And and internal lungs are required for aerial breathing. All right, so it makes no sense uh, for this fish to be out on the path. Like, is he more free in a sense? Yeah, like has broken the boundaries of the lake, has gotten out of the, the lake. But is he more free? Like, no, of course, David nailed it. Like, not at, not at all. 
right? We, we'd quickly pick the net back up. We don't want to leave our fish buddy on the, on the side of the road. We'd, we'd quickly pick the net back up, put him back in the water, get him back into the lake. Why? Because he was designed for, for water. Now, this is obvious, right? This is not, like, shocking. Avery's not like, this is what lakes and fish. That's not what's happening right now. Um, but it's interesting, because when we talk about freedom, or what we see in the text this evening, the word freedom or, or liberty... We talk about an absence sometimes of restriction and limitation. Now, there certainly is some truth to that, that freedom is an absence of uh, restriction and limitation, but there is a massive difference between an absolute absence of limitation and freedom. This fish saw freedom as an absence of limitation, or at least breaking the limitations within which he had actually always been free. And unless that fish gets back into the water, he's going to be more frozen than free. What the fish experienced is an idea of freedom without limitations in place that would actually lead to his flourishing. He learned what we sometimes can learn. That freedom without things in place to lead to flourishing is actually just another way of being trapped. So what if freedom is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it is actually finding the right ones that fit our nature and fit our liberty? What? I was surprised as I started to get in this idea of limitations and freedom, how much this is actually celebrated to have proper limitations that lead, that fit with your design and fit within like you actually experiencing freedom within them in the realm of art. Like specifically film, Orson Welles, who was the narrator of War of the Worlds and actually made his film debut in the like highly acclaimed Citizen Kane, says that the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. Which is interesting, because I would have thought it would be the opposite. Actress Debbie Allen said that out of limitations comes creativity. This is fascinating. Because what if the presence of the right limitations is actually what leads to our true freedom and flourishing? What if these are the conditions that all of humanity has been designed by God to flourish within? So regardless of what you've heard about Christianity... Like knowing there's different people coming from different places in the room, a cursory overview and look at the story of scripture reveals one thing. God cares about the freedom and flourishing of humanity. And it's not just when things are easy does it care about them. Last week we saw this in James. He cares about it even in the midst and through difficulty and pain. The problem is that it seems like our experience of life feels more like the fish who's slowly freezing. We had all this room in the lake to swim around and be free and flourish, but we looked out and we saw the path, so we try to get out of the lake, and we get caught up in a sin habit that seems impossible to shake, or we get weighed down by the performance and perfection of a place that seems to demand both. We get trapped by a love of money. We get afraid of the future that's coming or the past that may be behind us. We feel controlled by jealousy, anger, unforgiveness. We went looking for freedom and flourishing, but we feel like we're freezing. Maybe that's like some of your experience as you sit here this evening. And, and if so, an excellent question to ask tonight is how to hold together these two seemingly competing realities. That God cares about my freedom and my flourishing, but I also feel like I'm freezing. Maybe you'd ask it a different way, going back to the fish, if you were the fish. And this is the last time I'm going to talk about the fish, I promise. Um, maybe the question that the fish would ask, that we would ask, is this. How do I get back into the pond? Like, I want to swim freely, but it feels like I'm freezing slowly. So how do I get back into the pond? 
how do I give back into what I was designed for? How do I get back and into limitations that fit my nature so that I can experience freedom within them? James actually gives us an answer to that question this evening. All of that was just time to get you to James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 25 and actually build out from there so you can see where we're going. Verse 25 of James chapter 1 says this. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, or the law of freedom, maybe your translation says, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The one who looks into the perfect law, into the law of liberty, talking about the scripture, will be what? Will be blessed. Now, few words have been as abused in like pop religious culture than the word blessed. I don't have the time, but being blessed is not having more toys, trinkets, and things. In fact, it is entirely possible to have more toys, trinkets, and things and still feel entirely trapped. So having everything that you want and still feeling trapped does not quite equate out to being blessed. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means a number of things, but this word in the original language is the word marikos, and this means, literally, it means happy. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the, like, when he's talking about that, he's using this word that means happy. Uh, I think maybe a fuller translation of that word comes from this incredible book by this guy named Jonathan Pennington who wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing and he makes an argument that a great translation of this word bless, marikos, could be understood as flourishing. Flourishing is the one. It gives this picture of of like growth and of greenery and of garden and, and of life. Flourishing is the one who is poor in spirit. Flourishing is the one who's humble. You can pull this idea into this text. The one who looks at the law of liberty, the word that frees, will be given what is necessary to flourish, to be blessed. Freedom and flourishing is right there in the text. This is what it means to be blessed, to experience a kind of freedom from God that leads to flourishing. Which sounds nice, but poses a kind of natural question. What kind of a freedom is that? Or maybe better, like what would you be free from in that? And this is where our section in James actually begins. Verses 19 and 21. After James has talked about the realities of life and suffering, which we talked about last week, how to grow in your maturity and wisdom and endurance and clarity, how those things can actually lead to flourishing in the middle of difficult realities and difficult circumstances and suffering times, he now transitions this thought by talking about what this looks like on the ground in our lives. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. I just love that he says, my beloved brothers and sisters. Like, there's some, there, there's, when you tell someone to do something, it's different if you tell someone to do something because you want to be in control or because you want to look good because they're doing the thing that you told them to do. And, and there's a difference between that and saying, I want you to do this thing because I love you. And because I think this will actually lead to your flourishing and your freedom. That's what James is doing here. James loves these people that he's writing to. And so he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness, all rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
So what is this freedom from? What kind of freedom is James talking about? James is talking about a freedom from the power of sin. You look at this text and you ask the questions, why am I so slow to hear people? Why am I so quick to speak? Why am I, this is me, why am I quick to anger? It's because to some degree I'm still trapped or influenced by the power of sin in my life. James writes this and he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Don't brush that off too quickly. He says that right after he essentially says, you need to listen, shut up, and chill out. (laughs) Why? Because human anger, which is the thing that James is holding up here, he's saying human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Now there is a good anger. There is a good anger at injustice. There is a good anger that is slow to anger, but this is human anger. He's saying, I'm angry because blank person did blank thing. I'm angry because of my circumstances. I'm angry at myself. I'm angry because I'm not in control. I'm angry because I'm uncomfortable. I'm angry because I'm actually sad and I'm not ready to deal with the sad yet. All, All of this lying under human anger that James is saying does not produce the righteousness of God. This is the example he's using to explain the pervasive power of sin and its presence in our lives. And he says we're to put it away. Another translation is to get rid of it. Um, how? <laughs> that would be nice, right, if I could just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to put it away. I'm going to, like, fold up my sin and just put it in the closet and not deal with it anymore. That's not, like, how do I actually do that? What does putting this away actually look like? Well, putting it away would look like freedom, Now, again, you probably have a really good question here. It might be something like this. Rudy, why are you saying that I need to be free from sin? Aren't I already free from sin because of what Jesus Christ has done? Great question. That's why I said, what kind of freedom? Or freedom from what? It's an important question. Theologians have a really helpful way of distinguishing between two different kinds of freedom. First, if you are a Christian... There is a freedom from the penalty of sin that is yours because of what Jesus Christ has done. We call that justification. Just as if I had never sinned. The punishment for sin placed on Jesus Christ in my place. He takes that penalty from me and puts it on himself and gives his right standing before God to me in my place. Gospel 101, folk, you're about to read about that word overbreak, right? This happens the moment you believe in Jesus and what he's done through his finished work on the cross and through the empty tomb. By Jesus, your sins, Christian, are forgiven. Your spiritual status is changed from guilty to righteous, condemned to justified, and you are going to heaven for all of eternity. The second that you trust in Jesus, you are freed from the penalty of sin. Please do not hear me talking about that. That is covered by Christ already, justified. But there's a second kind of freedom. It's a freedom from the power of sin. This one is not instantaneous, as some of you may have experienced or perhaps, and likely are experiencing. This is the lifelong, ongoing process of partnering with the Spirit of God to become more like Jesus and less like your old sinful self. Theologians would call this sanctification, becoming more of who you already are in Christ. And James calls it freedom. It's freedom from the sin habits that are killing your joy and ruining your witness. It is freedom from the anger and unforgiveness that is eating away at your soul. Freedom from a love of self that keeps you from listening to others and serving those who are around you. A freedom from the self-hatred that comes from your shame and guilt-ridden past. 
addressing these things, or in James 121 kind of language, putting away or ridding yourself of that stuff is really hard and painful in the short run, but in the long run, you're actually blessed because you are free. You're free to live in the pond, free to live the way that you were made to live. The life of blessing that James is talking about is a life of freedom. And with this picture of flourishing and freedom that James is saying is available to us in Christ, we're left with this one question. How do we actually experience that? That sounds nice on paper. Thank you for breaking down the theological terms of justification and sanctification. I've got a little note to put in my journal tonight. That's great. But what does it mean for me to actually live into that? How do I actually experience this freedom? Maybe some of you, you've experienced this freedom in the past and you're like, I want to taste it again. I want to know it again. How can I continue to know and grow in this freedom? How do I experience that? Well, James, with the rest of our text, will give us two ideas that will come together and work as one answer. We'll lay that out. I'll give one final thought and I'll take my seat. So first, James says this in verse 21. I wonder if you caught it. Look, look back at the text. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The subject of this phrase is the implanted word by which James is referring to the scripture. He's referring to what we today call the Bible, which for some of you, you read that and then it will set off warning bells because he finishes that sentence and says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So Rudy, are you telling me that Bible reading is what saves me? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the story that the Bible tells is the story of the one who saves our souls. Tim Mackey, a theologian and director at the Bible Project, says this about the Bible. I love this definition. He says that the Bible is the story of God that leads us to Jesus. It's the word of God that points to the gospel of God. And when this word, when it takes root in us, remains in us, when we see the story over and over and over, the story of God that leads us to Jesus, there's a moment of decision that every single person in this room must come to. I either trust in Jesus Christ as my savior or I don't. I either trust that he's the one who saves my soul or I don't. Check the verb. It says that it is able to save your soul. What is able to save your soul? The good news of what Jesus Christ has done through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, taking your sin that separated you from God and putting it on himself, forgiving you of it if you put your trust in him fully and giving you new life in him through his resurrection now and for forever. All of scripture All of the story of God that leads us to Jesus either points to that moment, reveals that moment, tells us how to live in light of that moment, or reveals to us what the eternal and end point of that moment will be. This is the good news that he has freed us from the penalty of sin. So how do we on the ground experience freedom from the pervasive power of sin? There's two words we have to pay attention to here. We receive with meekness. We receive with meekness. Receive and keep receiving. Keep attending to. Keep coming back to. I love the picture of this word in the original language. It is like this idea of relaxing into. Relax into with meekness the word of God that reveals a story of God, the gospel of God that can save your soul. Another picture that this word gives in the original language is welcome. I love this one. It means that every time you open your Bible, you you enter back into reading and remembering the story of God that leads us to Jesus, you are constantly and consistently welcoming the story of God to form and shape your life. 
Leslie Newbegin says it like this, the way that we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story, which is the real story that my life is a part of. When we read the Bible, we are setting ourselves up to receive the real story of God that really leads us to Jesus so we might really experience more of the freedom that Jesus has made possible for us to know in this life. But again, how do we receive it? So we receive it, we relax into it, we welcome the word with meekness. I want to note here as it relates to how to experience this freedom, how to receive the word regularly, um, what it does not say. It does not say that we receive the word with suspicion. That we receive the word suspiciously, uh, trying to move and manipulate the words of God to fit them into what we want to say. Now, I'm not saying that we don't ask questions. If you know me or Salt Company, you know we don't just say questions are allowed here. We welcome questions. We are grateful for questions. Questions uh, elicit a sense of curiosity, and I think curiosity about Christ is an incredibly good thing. I'm saying just don't set yourself up with a suspicion that profanes the name of God and the word of God by putting words in his mouth that he never actually said. Freedom isn't going to be found there. It doesn't say to receive it with suspicion. It doesn't say to receive it partially like having a selective Bible buffet approach to reading the scripture, like you pick and choose and create like a bespoke sort of Christianity where God sounds like he often only ever agrees with me because I'm selecting the things that I want to receive from the word. Tara Isabella Burton, who writes for The Atlantic and for Vice, she wrote an incredible book. It's one of my favorite books I read in 2020. One, I think, uh, she wrote this book called Strange Rights, talking about how this pattern uh, where people were functionally like creating their own religions by pulling a little bit from Christianity, selecting a little bit from there, a little bit from secularism, a little bit from New Ageism, a little bit from Wicca, and, and they were creating, she, she said that everybody's starting to become their own high priest, and that that's not actually led to freedom, it's just led to confusion, so we don't practice that. We don't receive, welcome the word partially or selectively. Freedom won't be found there. We also certainly don't receive it arrogantly. An arrogant reception of scripture assumes that you already know that there's everything that there is to know already. It's an arrogance that's assumed that, that when you say, I can only learn from some people and not actually from others as it relates to the scripture. I caught myself doing this a couple years ago. I'll just be honest with you. I would write a line down the middle of my paper and I would listen to a message taught from the Bible just like this. And on one side of the paper, I would write the actual notes that the person was saying. And on the other side of the paper, I would write what I would say if I was preaching that message that's no bueno <laughs> right like that was just me being entirely arrogant as it related to the word I was kind of listening to what was being said but I was ultimately saying I know this better than you do arrogantly hearing the word this arrogance towards receiving the word as you hear it or read it creates this hypocrisy over time where you always consider yourself as better than and above and freedom just simply will not be found there See, freedom is found in receiving the word meekly. Or as my friend Alex says, being a humble listener. 
This idea of meekness is this this picture of coming under, of choosing to submit. It's been said that meekness isn't weakness. It actually takes strength and fortitude to say, I'm going to humbly receive this and let it shape and form me in my life in a way that nothing else does. It means I'm going to practice listening and receiving the word and do it with an attitude of humility, coming to the Bible or coming to a gathering where they'll be teaching and praying something like this in advance. God, you have something for me today that is going to help me live in the free and flourishing life that you have for me in Christ Jesus. Help me to listen and receive this with humility. I want to continue to receive the word with meekness. It means I hold time and space in my busy schedule in life to make room to receive meekly the word of God. I need to receive it. I need to receive it meekly, but that's not all that I do. Verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want you to think about this text, this invitation of life marked by freedom and flourishing like breathing. Everyone just collectively, let's do this all at once. Everyone just breathe in, deep breath in. Deep breath out. What if I hadn't, never mind, okay. Um, Breathing. You inhale and you exhale. Intake, output. You receive and you do. How healthy would you be if you only inhaled all the time? Not very. <laughs> How healthy would you be if you only exhaled all the time? Quite dead, right? Like, like that's just actually what would happen. It's not just one or the other. It's not that we just meekly receive and that's all that we do. And it's also not like we just only do the word without actually making room and time to be able to receive it. I need to breathe the scripture. I need to inhale it and exhale it, receive it and do something with it, intake it and output it, humbly listen, meekly receive the word and then go and do something with it. See, we obey, we respond. As we learn the story, we begin to live the story. We experience flourishing as we learn the limitations and the invitations that create a means of existing and following Jesus where we experience this freedom from the power of sin. Don't miss this. Even in our anchor verse of verse 25, it says that the one who is blessed is blessed in his doing. So how do we know what to do? We look. James gives this incredible metaphor for Bible reading and obedience. He says, you just look in the mirror. Some of you looked at me today and you said, Rudy, you had a moment where you looked in the mirror and said, I'm over it with the hair, right? I'm not as strong as Tyler or Benjamin or Max. I'm not as strong as you guys. Like, I just can't do it. I'm, I'm just, I'm impressed by you and I failed, okay? So like, I, I chopped it off. I looked at the mirror and I said, what am I going to do with all this hair? And literally downloaded the Sports Clips app, don't judge me, and went to Sports Clips and told him, buzz it off, right? Like I just, I looked at a mirror and I could have like ignored it and I could have walked away and I could have pushed it and I could have been wearing a beanie right now. But instead, I looked down to the mirror and decided to do something about what I saw. I saw and I did. I looked and I responded. I inhaled and I exhaled. I took it in and I did something with it. 
with the scripture living in the freedom and flourishing way of Jesus means we hear and we receive the word and then we go and do something with it. Jesus himself had some stuff to say about this, by the way. Luke 11, verse 28 says, uh, there's this woman um, who, who, who cries out to him, the verse before, and says, blessed is the one that bore you and the mother who nursed you. But in response, Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. John 13, 17, Jesus says that if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Please don't miss this. This is all over James. James is just echoing Jesus. He says that when it comes to the Bible, verse 22, we are either doers or we're deceived. He says, don't be hearers of the word, but doers, so you don't deceive yourself. He's imploring us to not be hearers who forget, but doers who are blessed. So we receive the word and we do the word. We know what to do as we look in the mirror of the word, as we read the text of scripture and the text in turn goes ahead and reads us. It reflects us back to us and we notice some areas where to respond to what we see, we'd have to actually do something with the word. My buddy Saul was actually talking about this recently. He noticed that the words in verse 24 and verse 25 are actually different as they present two different types of people. Look at verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 is the forgetful hearer, and verse 25 is the blessed doer. The word used in verse 24 is a different Greek word than verse 25. It means more of like a casual observation. To see something, to notice something, to, here's the word you could write down, glance at something. It's not the same word used in verse 25. This word is translated as looking intently. It has weight to it, emphasis to it. It's not just noticing, but it's looking with, wa- with, with awe, wonder, and, and amazement. There's another place this word is used, and it's to describe the way that both Peter and Mary looked into the empty tomb after Christ's resurrection. He said with the, sh- with the awe and the wonder and the amazement that Peter and Mary looked in and realized that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave, that same awe, wonder, and amazement is the degree, the quantity, and the quality at which we actually are supposed to look into the word of God. Not just with casual observation, but wonder and awe and amazement. You could say it like this. In verse 24, you see someone who glances, and in verse 25, you see someone who gazes. You gaze at the word. And gazing is not just the intensity of looking at what's described. It's also the duration of it. They look at it and they look into the word, but they also keep looking at it. James says that they persevere in looking at it. They keep looking at it. So to gaze into the word is not just a statement of intensity, but also duration. Not just quality, but also the quantity as you continue to look at the word over and over and over, day after day after day. All right, so let's summarize just where we've been, what James has been saying. The blessed life is marked by freedom and flourishing. Freedom is from the power of sin. And James says that as we receive the word, of me- the word with meekness and we do something with it, as we gaze with intensity and duration at the mirror of the word and do something with it, that we begin to experience that freedom. And I wonder if you hear that and start to maybe think of some of the things that actually keep you from reading the Bible. A.W. Tozer says this about what keeps us from gazing and from doing. He says that whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear to be. So in my last few minutes here, I just want to 
run through a couple things. Like what keeps you from your Bible? There's three thoughts. Each of these have kept me from mine and maybe they've kept you from yours. The thought of performance. Maybe I'm not reading my Bible right and if I'm not gonna read my Bible right, then why would I do it at all? Maybe busyness. I get more satisfaction from accomplishing other things. So it's not that I don't have time, it's that I don't make time because I wanna do other things more than read the Bible. Or maybe it's fear. I don't like what I see when I look at the mirror of the word. And I just wanna take the, our last couple minutes to just consider if you were to say those things to Jesus, how might Jesus pastor or lead or shepherd you through each of those three thoughts? So performance, often we feel the need to perform because we feel the need to be impressive. I think, and you've heard me say this before, that Jesus would say, you actually don't have to impress me. There's nothing in Jesus that is demanding you to impress him because his attention was on you before you took your first breath. I think he would quote himself from the end of Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about a life built on his word and how it endures in the storm of life and how the one that isn't built on his word doesn't. I think he'd say something about how it's not performing, but it's actually practicing as your foundation in Christ grows stronger and stronger as you follow after him day after day, that his invitation to you is not to perform, but to simply be present with him. I think he'd maybe say something like, this, that performance often comes from this place of insecurity that says that if I don't do this right enough, or I don't do it often enough, or I don't do it in a way that grips your attention, are you going to leave me? If I don't perform for you, are you going to stay with me? Performance often has to do with fear of permanence. If I, stay, if I do it, you'll stay. If I don't, you'll go. If that's you, here's what I think Jesus would say to you. I think he quote Matthew 28, his own words where he said, behold, I am with you always. Hey, you don't have to perform, I'm with you. I'm present with you. Open the word and you'll realize and learn how present with you I am. I think he would quote the words of God to you where God graciously says over and over to his people who did not deserve it, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But if it's performance, that you're actually freed to meekly receive the scripture, not to perform, but to simply be present with Jesus who's present with you. To listen and obey, not to perform and not to prove, but simply in response to him choosing to be present with you first. If it's busyness, I think maybe he'd ask a series of questions. Here's what I think he'd ask me. Um, for example, I think he'd ask me why there are some mornings where I prefer to get up early and get work done before I read my Bible. If he asked me that question, I would say, well, honestly, Jesus, it's because I really want to succeed. It's because there are parts of me that are absolutely terrified of failing, and I really want to be good at what I do. I want people to look at me and say, Rudy's good at what he does. And then I think Jesus would maybe be like, okay, well, why is that? And I think I'd maybe have to be honest and go a little deeper and say, because I, I want to be seen as somebody still. I want to achieve. I want to be someone who helps, not someone who has to ask for help. Maybe Jesus would pull me a little closer and say, okay, but why? And perhaps because underneath that, there's still this lingering desire inside me for status. That I'm anxious about wasting my life, that I really want my life to matter. Maybe that's why I wake up and check my email before I read my Bible. 
I think that to that, Jesus would say that through the cross and the empty tomb, Rudy, I've already proven that you already matter. That that status thing you're looking for, it's already been done. You're already loved, already cherished, already a prized possession of the creator. If it's you, I think maybe he'd say that I went to the cross for you and I gave up my status so that I could give it to you. I was unloved, Jesus would say, so you could be loved. I was shamed so you could be honored. Your eternity secure in me. You're my adopted brother and sister if you've trusted in me and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's not just that if you fail, I'll be there for you. It's more like you can't lose because I've already won. I think Jesus would say something like that to me. Perhaps I think he'd say something like that to you. That I'm freed to look into the mirror of the word, to remember who Christ says I am, and then do something by living into what he's put in front of me as I obey his word. Performance, busyness, fear. Maybe for you, this isn't ultimately about either of the first two. It's actually about fear and shame. You hate listening meekly to God's word precisely because it's a mirror. It's a really painful reminder as you open the Bible of who you are or who you've been or what you've done or what's been done to you. And it's really painful to face that. Whether it's the wrong things you've done or the wrong things someone else has done to you, when you look at the mirror, you feel disappointed. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. And that's uncomfortable. That God's word seems like this loud and clear for some of you reflection of your failures and your past. So you don't gaze into God's word because it hurts. Here's what I think Jesus would say to you. I think he'd say, I know your shame. I carried it on my back to the place of death so that you'd never have to carry it again. I think he'd say, I know your vulnerability. I was crucified naked in front of friends and strangers for you. I know your brokenness. I was fully and completely broken so you could be fully and completely whole. I know your past. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I wept for you so that one day I could wipe every tear from your eye. I know your failures. I paid all your sin debt now, and I'm working all your failures now for good and for my glory. I think he'd say, I took the curse of your law breaking so that you could get the blessing of my law keeping. I think that as you read the Bible and say, I'm not that, he'd say, exactly, I was that for you. That as you read the Bible and think, I could never be that, his response might be, well, is the tomb empty? Because if the tomb is empty, then maybe what seems impossible isn't. Maybe over time, as you receive meekly the word and you do it, he'll form you in ways that you never could have imagined, where you can be free from performance and from busyness and from fear as it comes to relationship with him and gazing at the word. That he's freed you from the penalty of sin and he's freeing you from the power of sin. There's actually something else even in there that he's doing as well. That he's not just freed you from the penalty and he's not just freeing you from the power, but perhaps he's also freeing you for something. Maybe he's freeing you for a purpose. Look at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives in his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Something interesting that James is doing is he's setting up the themes that he's going to dive into for the rest of the chapter. We're going to get back into, in the rest of his letter, we're going to get back into this. But I wonder, like, what if this is the life of freedom we've been hoping for? Like, what if you're not just freed from things, but you're actually freed for things? 
What if as you listen the word and you do it, you actually become more like Jesus as you're present with him in his word and as you obey him, as you actually follow him, you're not only just freed from the penalty of sin, you're not just being freed uh, progressively from the power of sin, but he frees you uh, for purpose. Let's walk it down through the text. What if this is where your words are a blessing and building up people, not dunking on them because you're so insecure in yourself that you have to mock someone else to actually feel something? So you actually can use your words to strengthen, console, and encourage one another to give the blessing you're receiving as you hear and do the word to other people through your words. What if that's something he's freeing you for? What if it, where you experience the outpouring of compassion from Jesus, what if it's supposed to go from you towards others, the least of these in our city? What if this compassion you experience as you enjoy the freedom and flourishing of following Jesus as you live and you hear and you do the word, you just can't help but actually give it to other people who are around you, that as he was compassionate with you, that you would give that compassion to others, to widows and to orphans, the single moms and fatherless children in our cities. How could you continue to serve in the schools and serve State Street and love the neighbors around you? Perhaps he's freed you from your sin to free you for that purpose. To not be stained by the world, but experiencing the freedom from the power of sin that comes as we hear and obey the word of God. That as we read the scripture, we lean to turn, we learn to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace, that the word becomes your firm foundation as you experience freedom from things, that you actually get to live into freedom to get to do things as you follow after Jesus. So with that in mind, I just wanna invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment of response. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know gazing into this word is a good thing. And what it's going to do is tell you the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save your soul. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus Christ has come to save you. And the decision, the fork in the road in front of you today is either that you say he is savior or he's not. And the reality as you continue or as you lean in, as you open the Bible, maybe for the first time and you receive this word meekly, you'll find and learn more of the story of God that leads you to Jesus. The story of God, of the one who sent his son so that he would save your soul. You could come to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him tonight, right now. Maybe you just need to pray that right now. Jesus, I need you to save me. Repent of my sin. I trust in you as Savior. Save me, Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You just need to look into the word and actually do it. Maybe you need uh, Jesus to, to, to awaken something inside of you for, the, for you to say, I'm gonna get in the text. I'm not gonna be a glancer. I'm gonna be a gazer. I'm gonna stare intently at the word. I want this. I wanna know him more and more and more. Or maybe you need help to actually do it. So you can ask for, for life and for help in reading the word and you can ask for help as it comes to actually doing the word. What would it look like to leverage spring break, to look into the mirror, to hear and to obey? We're, we're gonna sing here in just a moment and you can stand when you're ready, but I wanna just pray for you in this room. 
I want to ask that God would meet you where you are and give you what you need. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the word. God, I thank you for how you have freed people in this room, not just from the penalty of sin, but in some really beautiful ways, even over this semester and over this year and over these last several years from the power of sin, how they've seen that chokehold of sin on their life continue to get weaker and weaker and weaker as they look to you, as they stare at the word, as they gaze into the word, as they hear it and obey it. God, help me to do that. Help us to do that. My, my prayer, Jesus, is that you would make us a people who know freedom and flourishing so fully that it is, it is unignorable in the way that we live, that it would lead to, to, to deep joy and deep contentment. God, even as there are moments and, and stretches of time where it can feel so difficult, God, I pray that you would bring great comfort as we gaze into your word, as we stare at it. Jesus, we remember who you are and what you've done. And so we just want to do that right now. We're going to remember by singing things that are pulled from your word and, and made to rhyme and put with music underneath them. We're going to sing things that come from your word back to you. We're going to remind ourselves as we worship you of the things that are true of us and that are true of you. And God, as we hear it, would we continue to do it? Would you help us to believe it? Would you strengthen us this day? Because we love you. You know what we need. And so we're here to ask, help. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.